1: from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We would like to thank Movement Watches and ZipRecruiter for their continued support of SpyCast. You'll hear more about these great companies later, but first, let's meet our guests. So we're joined today by Sharon Weinberger, who is the executive editor at Foreign Policy. She just finished a stint as a national security editor at The Intercept, where she directed the publications, defense, and intelligence coverage. She's also a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Previously, she was a Radcliffe Institute Fellow at Harvard. She was a Knight Science Journalism Fellow at MIT. She has been a project fellow, an International Reporting Project Fellow at Johns Hopkins School of International Advanced International Studies and several other things I'm not gonna go through. Uh, Her writing has appeared in Nature, Discover, BBC.com, Slate, Wired, and Washington Post, and lots of other places. She's previously a senior editor of Aviation Week and co-founding writer and editor for Wired's national security blog, Danger Room. She's also author of two previous books, Imaginary Weapons, A Journey Through the Pentagon's Scientific Underworld, and co-author of A Nuclear Family Vacation, Travels in the World of Atomic Weaponry. Her most recent book is The Imagineers of War, The Untold History of DARPA, The Pentagon Agency That Changed the World. Thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to talk to us here today.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So these long, incredibly accomplished biographies can take a minute to get through, but it gives the idea to the audience of uh, how accomplished you are. Um, And and so I want to ask the question right off the bat, because there have been several books on DARPA that have come out relatively recently, including one or two prominent recent books. What did you bring to the table here? What makes this book different than the other books on DARPA?
0: So I applaud, um, there were both the previous efforts. Um, both are interesting in their own right. Um, neither were really histories of DARPA per se. There was the Department of Mad Scientists, which was a look at DARPA in the mid-2000s. So it had a, you know, sort of a chapter of potted history, and then it really focused on the agency under Tony Tether, who was the director for eight years and the longest serving DARPA director. It had interesting profiles of DARPA in that time period and what it was doing. Um, there was another book that came out a couple years ago, the Pentagon's Brain, which is sort of it's a it's a really colorful um, narrative-driven Cold War history in which sort of DARPA is dropped into it, but it's not really a history of the agency. Um, I don't think that book had any interviews. and Not to put it down, I mean, I think it's it's an it's a great, fun read, but it had no history with any of the directors of the agency itself. Um, So this book that I've been working on was really sort of a product of, of four and a half to five years of research for the book itself, but then over 10 years of doing interviews with employees within DARPA including directors, deputy directors, office directors, and then Pentagon officials who oversaw DARPA. And it was much more of an agency-driven history, you know, how to sort of break away from the myths of DARPA, which I think a lot of writing in the past has done, and, and ask, you know, is this agency, as it builds itself and as, frankly, past administrations have built itself, the most successful research agency ever created?
1: Yeah, I mean, you talk about the word myth, and I think it's really taken on this mythical status of, you know, people in whispered that these are the guys that invented the internet and these are the ones that are inventing the next big thing And, and you do talk I mean your bottom line up front in many cases is that they're still making interesting technology they're still in the cutting edge but they're they're Scope has really narrowed a lot since they were developed.
0: It has narrowed a lot, and that has been, um, for those within DARPA today, a very controversial thesis. But the reality is is that the people in DARPA today don't know its own history. Um, the unique nature of DARPA, that it has employees that serve there on a temporary basis, anywhere from one to five years, um, means that they only know DARPA and the period that it's in. So the irony of DARPA is it's, jo- it's enjoying this sort of unprecedented reputation, um, mostly from its creation of ARPANET, the predecessor to the internet. Um, but what I look at in my book is, okay, well, you know, was this really what DARPA always was going back to its creation in 1958? And absolutely not. This sort of you know reputation as a science fiction agency is really a creation of the 2000s when what were rather esoteric projects at the time i mean ARPANET was this tiny little project at the beginning that was buried under its Vietnam work, under its missile defense work, and under its nuclear test detection work. I mean, directors didn't even really know what what the guy, J.C.R. Licklider, the godfather of ARPANET, was really doing. They didn't understand it. And and I think Jack Runa, the director at the time, said, I just didn't care. You know, the two programs that the president of the United States cared about were missile defense and nuclear test detection. This sort of little program in computer networking was well under the radar.
1: Well, the, the mythology of DARPA goes back to its very beginning. I mean, a lot of, I, I learned in school, and I studied this when I was getting my graduate degrees, that it was Sputnik that just launched us directly into thinking that we were going to need DARPA because it, everyone was terrified. The minute the little basketball that beeped went up into space, everyone freaked out. And, and you kind of show that you know, the responsibility to create DARPA wasn't the panic, the immediate panic. Of Sputnik. There's really a slow burn that built up to people feeling they need an agency like this.
0: Yeah, there's this wonderful sort of um, uh, anecdote from uh, the written diaries, the daily diaries of the Secretary of Defense's main assistant who was traveling with him at the time. And they're at this cocktail reception. And Sputnik was a big deal. I mean, they were they were there with Wernher von Braun, and they were talking to rocket scientists. And then they get news that the Soviets had launched Sputnik, the world's first artificial satellite. And there was this, you know, sort of hubbub at the cocktail party and people running back and forth and press calls. And there was this idea that it was important, but not in that moment and not even in the immediate days that it was going to change history Um, But it quickly became this lightning rod, a way for um, opponents of President Eisenhower to criticize him, to say the United States is behind in the space race. Um, And and very quickly, you know, quickly meaning in the matter of, you know, first days of slow burn and then weeks, and then it was this huge panic. But it wasn't that everyone that night was staring up at the sky um, saying, oh, my God, there's a Soviet satellite up there.
1: Well, it's the inability or an impossibility of separating foreign and domestic policy during that time I and mean, it's if it wasn't for partisan politics, it may never have gotten to the level that it did. Was it was just the Johnson as as a senator just hammering Eisenhower over the head with this idea that now they can lob anything they wanted, as so well to be dropping missiles from space.
0: No, exactly. And, and partisan politics always play a role in things like that. If you look at September 11th and the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, this idea that. Well, government needs to show that it's doing something. Well, creating new agencies is one way to do it. So after September 11th, we created the Department of Homeland Security. Well, after Sputnik, there was the creation of what was then called ARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, and that was going to sort of solve everything. But what it's interesting at the time is it sort of presumed that, you know, ARPA was created and then it just continued on as it did. But really, the people who created ARPA, I think the evidence shows they really thought it was going to be a stopgap. Yeah, they would create this agency, it would be around for a year or two, and then it would be disestablished. And that it wasn't is um, a function of some colorful personalities who were there at the time.
1: Well, I thought what was also interesting was the idea that it wasn't necessarily Soviet technological achievement by itself that led to ARPA, but it was also our inability to put anything up in space to try to match the Soviets, the Vanguard program, which fails pretty miserably at first, was another major catalyst for creating this agency.
0: Yeah, well, that was one of the lessons learned from Sputnik. And I think there have been some really good histories on this, that, you know, sort of authoritarian governments, I mean, the Soviet Union in some ways was better equipped to launch a rocket, not because it was so far ahead technologically, but you didn't have all of the competing institutions that you have in a democracy where we had three military services all fighting over who got to launch a rocket. Um, where you have congressional politics, the president's science advisors were lobbying him. There were all these different factions that had influence in what was going on. So
1: when, when ARPA was first created in its early years, there's, there's positives and negatives. Of course, because it's so small, it can be very agile, we'll use that word later on. And there's a, there's a lack of bureaucracy. But at the same time, it really does bring out the crazies all the people with wild dreams and want government funding to try to create the next big thing.
0: In a way, it was like, the, you know, when the crazies were coming, I mean, if you look at some of the defense ads that were in the pages of my old magazine, Aviation Week at the time, or other trade magazines, It was just, I mean, the advertisements are wonderful. All of these nuclear space bombers propelled, nuclear rockets, sort of fantastic schemes. We were gonna conquer the moon and do it with this exotic technology. And so when DARPA was created, all of these Pentagon officials who were being flooded with these ideas, go go talk to DARPA. So it really was sort of like the the agency of, of the crazies, or at least where the crazies could go. And DARPA was supposed to sort through these proposals, And say which ones were crazy. And so, you know, the people, the, you know, writing from their perhaps institutions (laughs) with their schemes to protect the Earth, you know, those would be the crazies. But then DARPA, in its own way, embraced its own crazies. You know, there were scientists, you know, very credible scientists who had sort of crazy ideas of what to do. And one of DARPA's first projects was truly crazy. They were going to build a force field around the Earth to stop nuclear missiles from getting through. And that it was pretty crazy. Well one of
1: the one of the interesting early stories was and it's something we deal with here in intelligence today, but certainly uh, in the military as well, is explaining to policymakers some of the science. And the early story about Nike Zeus and, and why it was so problematic and difficult as a program is one of the top DARPA scientists or ARPA at the time, scientists, had to explain to policymakers it wouldn't work cuz the earth was round. It had to get to the that basic level of like third grade science explaining to policymakers why some of this would not work.
0: We still do today. Yeah. I mean that that and that's a wonderful anecdote that I love. So Jack Rurina um, a scientist who was the head of DARPA at the time, you know, he not even jokingly he said, "I gave what he what I called the Earth is round briefing, which is explained the basics that the Earth is round and that's why it's hard at a certain distance to track missiles because radar can't, you know, sort of go all around, bounce around the globe." I mean, basically explaining basic math and physics to Pentagon officials, and frankly, those briefings would still be well served to have today in the Pentagon. I hope they're doing them.
1: Well, some of the crazy ideas, interestingly enough, were almost not entirely reinvented or reimagined in the 1980s and 1990s, even today, but some of the early programs like Project Bambi, the Boost Intercept, that's kind of how we're trying to shoot down ballistic missiles today, because we still can't shoot them down.
0: Yeah, what's interesting about DARPA's early involvement in missile defense was, in a way, the schemes back then were even crazier because nothing had really been tried. And it was viewed as this immediate existential threat. They really let their imaginations run wild. So there was the idea of a force field that was going to be created by exploding nuclear weapons at high altitude. There was um, this program called Bambi, uh, which was going to be basically a, a, a net that you put up in space to catch missiles. And it became so um, such a joke that people started saying, you know, kill Bambi. It's all about killing Bambi. And there was um, one proposal, another DARPA funded idea for a particle beam called Project Seesaw. And it was going to take basically the entire power grid of the United States to power this particle beam. And so the scientists behind it, you know, they said, well, we need to kill this project because there's really no way to power it. And he's like, well, we could put nuclear weapons under the Great Lakes like a nuclear suppository and then we're going to drain the Great Lakes, and the water is going to help generate the electricity to power this particle beam that will blast nuclear weapons mid flight. It was just crazy. Um, so, the connection between those and today is, um, is sort of in spikes. You know, these crazy ideas were reborn under Ronald Reagan with so called Star Wars. And today, in a way, it's much more scaled back, but these ideas keep coming back, the idea of laser weapons, particle beam weapons. Um, but the um, you know physics doesn't change.
1: Well, the reaction was fantastic. You, that Great Lakes story, uh, you're like, that's ridiculous. But the reaction of other scientists were like, well, that might just work. <laughs> well, yeah, I
0: mean, so that was the, the sort of crazy beauty of it. Was that um, scientist in particular, Nick Christophilus, um, was a Greek-born scientist. He's often mistakenly called a former Greek elevator repairman. I mean, he was actually more educated than that, um, you know, a little bit self-educated. He had worked in an elevator repair company. Um, but he came to the United States, and, and what fascinated um, other scientists about him was that he, like, his imagination was unlimited. So he didn't care about the actual practicalities of throwing a net in space um or, you know, draining the Great Lakes. He cared about the physics. And the physics were so brilliant that it and so correct on, on the physics that it sort of enchanted his colleagues and they were willing to let the craziness of the proposals go through. Um, you know, my other favorite Christophilus proposal was uh he wanted to build a highway across the entire United States so that nuclear bombers could constantly be on the move and thus never attacked by the Soviet Union. So is the idea that he, practicality didn't matter to him.
1: What's extraordinary again during the Reagan administration, the ICBM basing moods, they brought up a lot of those same ideas again of having trains going around the United States and trucks and everything. One of the great things, if you want to kind of be a detached historian in this case, was the the perception of nuclear weapons is just another thing. When you look at stuff like using them under the Great Lakes, or uh, something that you don't talk as much about, like Project Plowshare, which was like open up, you know, using nuclear weapons to blow tunnels into mountains and other things. But Project Orion is another great example of this, where hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of small nuclear weapons to try to create interstellar travel in space, which is one of those mind-blowing ideas. Space travel is hard enough as it is without detonating nuclear weapons behind your ship
0: yeah and again, the physics were just brilliant. I mean, it really had top minds associated with it, but the it, again, it was the practicalities of it. I mean, I think at one point, they calculated the fallout on Earth and you know how many people would die per year from cancer to launch the spaceship and that 's a pretty gruesome calculation. You know Who are these people who are going to be on the spaceship with thermonuclear weapons exploding out the back? Um, you know, there was um, a story of President Kennedy being shown a, a model of Orion with, you know, these thermonuclear weapons packed on the back and just being rightfully right. horrified by it. Um, but again, it was, it, it was a product of the era. When the country felt that it was under threat, you, the idea was you, you consider everything, even a nuclear-powered spaceship.
1: One of the, the key protagonists, for lack of a better word, of the book uh, is William Godel. Godel?
0: Godel. Godel.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, who is an interesting character. I mean, this is somebody who a lot of people at SpyCast, interested to know, was doing some really interesting intelligence work uh, at the end of World War II, going even inside areas that were controlled by the Red Army, uh, and then became a major figure all the way for several decades at DARPA.
0: Yeah, in some ways I look at this DARPA book as placing William Godel back in history and back in the history of DARPA because he was such a seminal figure in the intelligence world, and I feel that story has yet to be fully told. But in this case for DARPA, so William Godel was sort of a famed um, intelligence operative for world, from World War II. He had been involved in aspects of um, Operation Paperclip bringing German scientists, and in some cases, in his case, Russian scientists as well, back to the United States. Um, and um, when DARPA was created in 1958, he was actually up for a top position at the National Security Agency, possibly the director. Um, but he was quickly moved over to DARPA, in essence, to represent the interests of the spy community, because um, the CIA spy satellite, what eventually became Corona, was being swept up into this new effort. And they wanted someone to sort of represent you know, the spies. And that was Goodell's role. He was placed in sort of a cover office called the Office of Foreign Developments. Um, And then later he rose to be deputy director. And he played this very pivotal role in DARPA in 1959 when basically the agency was about to really go away. Um, NASA was created, and as Eisenhower wanted, the civil space systems were moved over to NASA. And then DARPA lost a bureaucratic war, and its military space programs went back to the services, the Army, Air Force, Navy, and you suddenly had this agency that was left without a mission. And Godell being a Godel, looked around and said, well, I, you know, I see a mission here. We, um, he, he said, the, the wars were most likely to fight, You know, are not going to be in a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union. Yes, that's a threat, but that's not the likely scenario. It's likely going to be proxy wars in places like Southeast Asia. He'd been traveling to Vietnam a lot. And so he lobbied the Pentagon and President Kennedy to let him open a jungle warfare center in Vietnam, what was called the ARPA Combat Development and Test Center, that was going to help the South Vietnamese military fight the communists. And this basically pivoted DARPA from being a space agency into this huge counterinsurgency mission around the world.
1: Well, I mean, as you write in the book, it essentially turned Southeast Asia and other places into large-scale scientific laboratories for counterinsurgency
0: yes, in a way this is an extension of something like Project Orion, that same mentality of science is something that can change humanity and change warfare, only instead of experimenting with nuclear weapons, they were experimenting with nations and people. And so this program that William Godell developed, um, it was called Project Agile, um, basically a counterinsurgency program, became global, and the idea was can we find a scientific basis for what causes insurgencies and thus a scientific solution to insurgencies. And they ended up opening um, offices in um, Thailand, in Vietnam, in Panama, in Iran, and Lebanon. And the idea of, in fact, this was quoted in a couple letters, in fact, about Iran saying these are test beds for counterinsurgency, nations as test beds, which is. An interesting and in some cases frightening concept.
1: Well, we talked about how JFK didn't like Orion; he was completely blown away by the crazy of that program. But this is this itself, the counterinsurgency in Project Agile, was something that JFK fully supported, as well as people like Edward Lansdale and others that are, you know, intrinsically linked to the fight against communism in the 1960s.
0: Kennedy was enchanted by both by Lansdale, but also sort of he liked this. I mean, he liked James Bond. He liked this you know, sort of jungle warfare, special operations, gadgets, doohickeys, um, the sort of the spy world that um, General Lansdale represented. And Lansdale was a very close associate of Godal. In fact, Lansdale was the one who helped lobby to get this DARPA Combat Development Test Center opened. Um, and what they were pitching um, was very interesting. What they weren't saying was, we're not going to develop a, a jungle warfare center for US troops. We want to help local troops, you know, South Vietnamese troops in these countries fight so that U.S. conventional troops don't have to. So this was sort of in line with what was at the time Kennedy's vision. Well,
1: and I think that's one of the things where people might go, oh, so it's DARPA's fault. Well, the whole idea was to keep U.S. troops out and to find scientific ways to help native troops and, and local troops do the fighting. And, you know, when it went bad and U.S. troops were put in, that was the opposite of what Goddard was trying to do.
0: Yeah, and it had, um, you know, DARPA, like the Pentagon, was swept up into political forces, larger political forces, um, both with the Kennedy assassination and even before that, the pressure from um, generals to use conventional troops in Vietnam. But yes, the original idea was a noble one, which is, let's stay out of these foreign entanglements. But the problem was, was that the programs they created, for example, chemical defoliation, which were going to be a limited tool of insurgency, you know, for instance, just use for getting rid of jungle cover began to be used expansively across Vietnam and in support of U.S. conventional troops.
1: And another program that DARPA and Godell advocated was the Strategic Hamlet Program, which is problematic, to say the least.
0: So I find Godel's involvement in the strategic hamlet program fascinating because it's, in in a way, it's this very important, that the sort of the forced resettlement of peasants and and farmers into these um, hamlets that could be protected was uh, such um, a horrendous mistake that was made during the Vietnam War and had such repercussions in the country. And there have been books written about it, but no one was ever really clear, like, well, who came up with Strategic Hamlet? Sometimes it's attributed to the CIA. Um, sometimes it's attributed to um, President Siem's brother in Vietnam. Um, but really, from the archival material I looked at, which included interviews um, Uh, court transcripts, uh, subpoenas that were issued to South Vietnamese officials, Godel was a seminal figure in this and really advocated for the Strategic Hamlet Program.
1: We'll have more with Sharon in a moment, but let me take a minute to tell you about Movement Watches. Movement Watches, spelled M-V-M-T, but pronounced movement, was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. The watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality, minimalist products at revolutionary prices. With over 1 million watches sold to customers in over 160 countries around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest growing watch company. Look, the story of this company's beginning is pretty amazing. As someone who has worked to use word of mouth and social media to build Spycast brand, I really took to this story. In 2013, two watch enthusiasts dropped out of college with the dream of reinventing the watch industry. Now, I'm not one to advocate this, but tired of big brand markups, the duo set out to create a direct-to-consumer model. Due to enormous fan support, they became the second-highest crown-funded fashion brand in 2013. Through the amazing engagement of their fans, they've established a growing community on social media, amassing more than 1.5 million followers. And since 2013, they've really come far. The watches are gorgeous, both men's and women's watches. I've told you this before, but I went on their website to check out the watches. A huge argument broke out in my office about which one looked the best. And guys, this is months ago. They've added so many cool watches to their website even though I'd eventually choose a single watch, there are so many that I would love to have. The great part is, if I want another one, I can actually afford it. It's because Movement watches start at just $95. At a department store, you're looking at $400 to $500. Bucks. Movement figured out that by selling online, they were able to cut out the middleman and retail markup, providing the best possible price. We're talking classic design, quality construction, and stylized minimalism. And again, over 1 million watches sold in over 160 countries. So get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movementwatches.com slash spycast. The watch I have is a really clean design. Seriously, i beginning ever since I put it on. A lot of, where did that watch come from? So now is the time to step up your watch game. Go to mvmtwatches.com slash spycast. Join the movement. One thing I found interesting during this time period was, although DARPA's role was increasing with counterinsurgency there were really competing visions about what kind of an agency it should be. Uh, and this was between Godell and others. And, and you put it down, essentially, is it a science agency that was there to serve national security? Or was it a national security agency that kind of utilized scientists and was served by scientists? And that was really, at the heart of this is the basic research versus applied research concept of any kind of major research laboratory.
0: I think this is a tension that has characterized and shaped DARPA from its very beginnings. And there is no answer to that question because DARPA has always been a creation of the people leading it and then the people above it. So it can be. It can be a science agency that does national security or a national security agency that does science. Godell certainly had the vision of it's a national security agency yeah. and these science scientists should serve us. Uh, Jack Arena, one of the directors who served over Godel, had a completely different vision. But in a way, this is also competing visions of science in our country. You know, if you look at the debate now on the proposed cuts to the National Institutes of Health and to other sort of you know climate research, and proposed increases to DoD budget, these reflect also debates that were throughout the Cold right. War. What is the purpose of science funding?
1: When you can see this you know, writ large in the same time period you're developing the Arecibo telescope, which is about as pure science as it gets. There's very little you can talk about national security-wise with a volcano crater-sized telescope looking into space, and then a develop program at the same time, which is near and dear to our heart here at the Spy Museum. This is really focusing on we call mass center, or the Intel side of of what we're doing. But even with the Vela program which was designed to detect underground nuclear tests, and nuclear tests around the world, it has really dramatic civilian benefits. As you write in the book, it really it drags my seismog- seismology kicking and streaming into the twentieth century
0: yeah I mean Arecibo I mean Arecibo is beloved by scientists. Godel absolutely hated it because it was sort of hidden i mean not even hidden it was this this will help us with missile defense and everyone admitted this has nothing to do with missile it's just it 's a really nice science facility and it, it it was is that a bad thing for DARPA to do because it didn 't have a strict national security aim Hard to say, but it, it does work both ways so the Vela satellites, as you mentioned they i mean so much of the work DARPA has done has civil benefits. Um, and so I think the tension actually is a good one. It, it, it has helped both sides of DARPA develop and do interesting things.
1: Let me ask you about ARPANET. We talked about it a little bit, but you know that, that seems to be one of the things that uh, people point to when they think about ARPA or DARPA. And this is – you can't say that there's a direct – causality here. There's some correlation to uh, the events of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the inability of different agencies to, their military branches to talk to each other during this time period. But you also have to look at individuals, and I think this is it's impossible to talk about this without talking about... So the irony here, let me, when I was typing I, I have notes in front of me, that's the deep secret of, I don't think of this crap off the top of my head, I actually write down stuff. And when I type Licklider into... Microsoft Word, it didn't recognize the name. and I thought the, the irony of that was delicious. The guy who essentially helps invent the internet is not recognized by Microsoft Word as being a real person. So it is this kind of combination of world events, but then certain people who just had the vision that you needed in the right place at the right time.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the fascinating thing um, about the ARPANET is that there is no one explanation for how it came about. So when I asked the different people involved, why did um, DARPA get involved in this area? Everyone had a completely different explanation. So Harold Brown, the former defense secretary, is still very much alive, and I spoke to him recently, and I said, you gave DARPA the command and control mission. You wrote the assignment. What, what did you think DARPA was gonna do? And he said, oh, I thought it was gonna be nuclear command and control. It was the development of PALS. I, 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 you know, I, wanted, I wasn't happy with what the services were doing. Um, William Godel, in an interview that he did 10 years later, Um, that I got from the Pentagon under the Freedom of Information Act, he said, yeah, I think it had something to do with the looking Glass aircraft, the um, nuclear command and control. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought Licklider was going to do. The person who first contacted Licklider to come into DARPA wasn't so much interested in computers, but was worried about brainwashing and Soviet psychology. Licklider didn't care about any of this. He had a vision, a real vision, of changing the way people... Um, interact with machines—the very, you know, nature of of man-machine interaction. He didn't so much care about nuclear command and control. He he certainly didn't care about brainwashing. But yet he wouldn't have been hired and been given this funding without all of these other people sort of chiming in. So it's all of these sort of interwoven histories. But Licklider, he's only now in recent years sort of claiming his place in history. He was sort of a very modest individual, very focused on his work. But you would not have the modern Internet such that it is today without his involvement.
1: Let me kick back to counterinsurgency a little bit, because it's right after this time period that COIN spreads outside of Southeast Asia into the Middle East. Um, And Iran was really the lab in the Middle East for counterinsurgency. Uh, One of the interesting things here is all about counter-smuggling when it came to the the money uh, coming out of drug smuggling was the key. And it seemed like DARPA had a pretty good way of stopping this from happening, but Much in the same way it was very difficult to do counterinsurgency in Vietnam when you don't have a stable government in the south, the same can be said for the attempt to stop smuggling in Iran. I think The reason I'm bringing this up is I think today a lot of people who are veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan can understand if you don't have strong local governments, regional governments, centralized governments, I don't care how many troops you have on the ground – You're never going to rebuild or stop an insurgency.
0: Well, that's the lesson in some ways, at least that I draw from all of this. So the interesting thing about the reason why DARPA looked at Iran as a, quote, test bed was Iran was more? It didn't have at the time an active insurgency like South Vietnam had. So they said this is sort of a stable laboratory, and we can do you know test conditions. So drug smuggling, as you mentioned, was one of the big areas that they were involved in, and a lot of it was drawing on, for instance, sensor work that DARPA had developed from nuclear test detection, um, and other things. You know, there were, for instance, trying to you know detect um, trucks coming in that might be you know half heroin, half water. Making up that statistic, but basically, you know, basically ways of using sensors or heat detection um, to stop drug smuggling. But in the end, and this was the lesson that another DARPA director drew, you know, you are, you know, DARPA or the U.S. government cannot come up with these solutions if you don't have a government in place that actually wants to stop the problem. So in Iran, what they found out was, well, actually there were some connections between the drug smugglers and the royal family, and that sort of ended that. Um, you know, Steve Lukesic, who was a later DARPA director, said the problem with all of these approaches, it was sort of a systems analysis approach. We're going to look at all the problems in your country that contribute to insurgency, and we're going to solve them in this systems analysis approach. But he said, you know, at the end of the day, the only government that can take a systems analysis approach to its own problems is the government in the country. Right. The U.S. can't do it for them.
1: Well, and that really ends up that essentially most of the coin programs, and not all the coin programs, if you... If you ignore Thailand, which had its own like right-wing coup, essentially every country that this COIN program was attempted in, its laboratory, fell to insurgent forces.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is the, the terrible tragedy of it. And um, William Godell, who had his own very tortured history, was sent to jail um, in 1965, I think probably quite unfairly, and so 10 years later, he's out of prison, he's well out of government, and he's reflecting on all of this. And at least in Vietnam, you know, he was, and this was his program, his sort of baby, Project Agile. And he said he was asked to name any successes from it, and he said none. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he said part of it was we tried to solve what were human problems with technology. Um, but the problems actually went beyond that. In the end, the U.S. was working with governments, except with the exception of Thailand, that, that had, more systemic problems than a DARPA program or even a U.S. government program could solve.
1: Let me ask you about the era of George George Hellmeyer. Uh, Because he came in and I guess he kind of had a very particular view of that whole basic science versus applied science debate. Because he created what's considered the Hellmeyer Catechism, which is still used today. I had the deputy director of IARPA in maybe six months ago, and we talked about the Hellmeyer Catechism. is still the way they determine whether or not a project makes sense. How did he change the direction of the way DARPA was being run?
0: So Haller himself um, had invented the liquid crystal display and was so upset that it, it wasn't transitioned properly. So he was very much not just a technologist, but a technologist who had an idea of, of what it takes to get technology. You can invent many things that are wonderful that will never be used. And so he kind of looked, um, and his boss looked at DARPA, as, you know, this should be like like a corporate laboratory, that we produce products that are used by the military. And if we're not doing that, what on earth are we doing? So he came in and actually Licklider, godfather of the ARPANET, had come back into DARPA for a second tour and he and, you know, Licklider and Heilmeier just really clashed, um, did not see eye to eye. Both brilliant men in their own rights, but had very different visions of how you develop science and technology. So Heilmeier took a lot of sort of the basic research programs and said, tell me, you know, if you can't tell me how this is going to be a product, a technology, a platform for the military, I'm not interested in it. So he came up with the catechism, which were these bullet points about, um, you know, what is it you're trying to do? Um, What are sort of the milestones it will take to get there? How is it different than what's being done now? Um, If you could do it, how will it fundamentally change things? It sort of went through all these bullet points, and that was how he judged whether a program should go forward. And in a way, the The modern DARPA is as much a product of his DARPA, of Heilmeier's DARPA, and of the catechism than anything that came before it.
1: it, it, I wonder if ARPANET would have even been looked at under his catechism.
0: So that's the irony. And that's why I said the tension in DARPA between science and technology, between national security and science, is good. Absolutely not. I mean... um, basically, there's this great quote from one of his interviews where he spoke to some of the scientists that Licklider was funding and said, you know, if you can't tell me what you're going to produce, I'm going to tell you to go perform an unnatural sexual (laughs) act. Um, So no, ARPANET, he never would have funded Heilmeier's original work, and ARPANET never would have come into being at DARPA. That doesn't mean that Heilmeier was a bad director. I don't think the stealth aircraft, so Heilmeier really shepherded through Have Blue, because he said, God damn it, I'm not going to fund this unless the Air Force buys him. Because what's the point of developing a stealth prototype if nobody ever flies it? So he got the Air Force to come in. DARPA kept managerial control, but the Air Force was invested in it, which meant they were going to continue the program. So that tension changed DARPA and produced other good things, but you wouldn't have always wanted the agency under him. And so what I worry about today with Dharma, by saying, like, oh, we, we still have the catechism, I think they need to relook at, is that always a good thing?
1: Right. It seems like it, it completely retards big thinking. Just thoughts for the sake of thoughts. You know, these, these you know, bolt from the blue moments of, I don't know why we want to do this, but it'd be interesting to see what happens when we do. You know, I...
0: Yeah, and that's sort of the DARPA that you had under, for instance, Jack Ruina in the early 1960s, under Steve Lukasik, um, in the, 19, in the early 1970s. You know, Steve Lukesic, I never read the DARPA orders, those were just about following the directors anyway. They were very much um, idea-driven directors, very different between them in their own right. Um, but they were much willing to tolerate... They, they expected good science. They, they didn't want pseudoscience. They didn't want crazy, crazy ideas. But they would sort of entertain sort of flights of fancy if they thought, well, there is something to it and it's good science and, and it might lead somewhere. This is
1: interesting. Like, you look at what was called the Tactical Technology Office, which comes out of Vietnam. But some of these ideas that were not ready for prime time in Vietnam that would be sort of flights of fancy in the early 1960s are stalwarts of the U.S. military today. Talking about drones, precision weapons, and stealth, like you talk about stealth aircraft. All of these come from big thinking during Vietnam, and it's only later that the technology is available to make them actually happen.
0: Yeah, so one of the biggest arguments, I, think I mean arguments, um, disagreements I have with current DARPA officials is they've always tried to argue that the Vietnam, that, you know, now they say, yes, Godel was fascinating, we're so happy you brought him to light, but that was a deviation from DARPA history, and I say, no way. Everything that we associate, not everything, almost everything we associate with modern DARPA came out of the Vietnam experience. So the first attempts at a quiet aircraft were Vietnam. The first attempts at drones, even armed drones, were out of Vietnam. And basically after the Vietnam War and DARPA was under a lot of pressure, as was the Pentagon, they had to kind of bury these programs but save the technology. And the way they did that was a... um, First, they renamed Project Agile the Overseas Defense Research Office, and then they named it again the Tactical Technology Office. Most people today in DARPA, including in the Tactical Technology Office, have no idea that that was a repackaged Vietnam office.
1: Well, and then you see things like the F one seventeen, which mm-hmm. comes, you know, had its debut during Desert Storm, and this, the development of this, you, you detail in the book, but it seems like a match made in heaven. You take DARPA and Lockheed Skunk Works, which is also Yes. mythologically, you know, considered the, the you know, the, the U two and the SR seventy one and all those with Kelly Johnson and put them together, and that that to me is the fascination of how these two agencies that are or agency an agency and a, or a company like that come together to take Vietnam era ideas and thoughts and turn them into an aircraft like the F-117. Yeah,
0: it's important to remember. As you said, it's, it's such a great point that, you know, skunk works was an, an also an important part of stealth prototype. I've, I recently heard a lecture by a former CIA official who tried to claim that stealth was a CIA invention. It just... they they. they, they, they the, the truth is that the CIA does get some credit for some early stealth development. It's always, you know, what, what is the saying that, you know, success has a thousand fathers and failure is an orphan. Um, I do think with stealth that DARPA gets the lion's share of credit, but so does Skunk Works and CIA gets some. So it's the same with the Arbonite. It is many different things coming together.
1: And This is really all coming together. Again, it's not just one cause for any of this. Coming in a very fortuitous time politically because Ronald Reagan comes to power in the 1980s and with him a massive checkbook to start really going after these programs that would not have been developed if it wasn't for the mass, the billions and billions of dollars of spending that gets thrown DARPA's way.
0: Yeah. I mean, Reagan really was a, a shift, a watershed for DARPA, which is always interesting. I mean, DARPA's fate is always tied, of course, to what's going on politically and in the White House to some extent. So DARPA after the Vietnam War really sort of hit a hard period. It was getting budget cuts. And then Reagan comes in, and the guy who was tapped to be director, Bob Cooper, gets this call with these promises that, you know, they're going to do these amazing things for the defense budget. He's like, no way. But sure enough, it happened. And it propelled DARPA from being sort of a, you know, a back, not a backwater, but sort of a, you know, a science agency that was doing some technology programs to being front and center in Ronald Reagan's Cold War buildup.
1: And a lot of this, you mentioned, dealt with things like the stealth technology, but also drones. And also again, drones, yes. another interesting bringing together um, happenstance and genius. I mean, you look at the the ability to spot genius and in finding someone like Abe Karam, mm-hmm. who had developed Amber, which uh, if you've seen a predator today, you've seen the grandchild of Amber. Um, but you talked about this earlier when it came to stealth technology. This was something where... You know, you can lead a horse to water and you can develop an early prototype for every drone on Earth today, essentially. But the military needs to actually want to purchase this. And unlike yeah. stealth technology, drones kind of languished because there was no buyer on the other end.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, Ape Karam, and that's sort of an example, as you had talked about earlier, with Skunkworks. I mean, Ape Karam was his own little Skunkworks, a one-man Skunkworks who had this real vision and got hooked up with DARPA pretty early. Uh, which funded his early work in, in in drones, unmanned aerial aircraft, and his company ended up going bankrupt because once DARPA had finished its funding, you know, no one was around to buy it. It was only later, after Abe Kerm's company was bought, that the CIA got involved. Now, one of the the interesting things is that I was told that apparently that the CIA was always involved; that they had that basically the Navy and DARPA had funded Abe Karam's work, but it was really the CIA that was most interested in it. But it is true that without the CIA's involvement, right. you know, you wouldn't have the predator as it is today.
1: Well, and without the Bosnian War, you wouldn't have had. Exactly. I mean, So, again, all these things Many coming together. Many Yeah, it's really – and I think your book does a really good job of showing the kind of multiple causalities of these and not simplifying things. And that was – Others not saying others on DARPA. I'm not singling out those other two books. (laughs) But all good books, especially historical books. And you do a very good job of showing multiple causalities. And that I applaud that. We'll have more about DARPA in one minute. But first, let me take a moment to tell you about ZipRecruiter. As I've told you before, ZipRecruiter is a company that was founded by a group of guys who worked in the tech industry and with startups and realized the absolute worst thing about running an operation was a process of hiring people. If you live in D.C., you might notice a new building going up In the L'Enfant Plaza area, it's hard to miss at this point. This is the building of the new museum. It's chugging away, but soon comes the hard part. We'll eventually need to hire a lot more people as we get closer to the opening. When we need to hire a new person, we want to get the very best people, and who doesn't? But the process seems never-ending and can take a huge amount of time. Time we don't have as we try to run our current operation while planning the content for the new museum. The people at ZipRecruiter have the solution. So are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find these quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job in all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. There's no juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. Right now, SpyCast listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com first. That's ZipRecruiter.com first. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com first. Um, I'm an ex tanker in the army and so when I saw your your pretty lengthy analysis of simnet, I was kind of smiling to myself. Um, uh, in the 90s you know we did most everything uh, and very rarely actually rolled tanks out to do real live gunnery because most everything we were doing was being simulation doing things within uh, essentially virtual reality simulations of the battlefield and this is another DARPA creation you know the ability to take, what they saw at Desert Storm and other places and put it into kind of the very early stage of virtual reality and simulations with computers running things. that Kids today would just be like, that's silly, that's ridiculous. But again, in the 1990s, it was the coolest thing we'd ever seen.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was really this um, moment that it linked together ARPANET, this emerging Technology created at DARPA of computer networking with emerging technology and simulation all together at DARPA. And basically the idea of not just simulating, you know, you could do a simulator and have people be in a tank, but to be on a sort of a virtual battlefield to link these simulators together was really quite innovative and new, and DARPA gets credit for that. I mean, much of the world of online gaming, it's hard to say that DARPA created the world of online gaming, but it was um, concurrent developments of technology, and certainly DARPA contributed to a lot.
1: Well, I mean, during the 90s, the idea is everything, the peace dividend was was dramatically reducing budgets, not only for the military, but for intelligence as well. And you look at an M1 tank that it doesn't, get rated in miles per gallon it gets rated in gallons per mile and essentially it's it's for every mile you go it's three gallons of fuel and it takes eight gallons to fire the thing up in the first place so just to have the 500 gallons that have one you know 100 mile trek you're talking thousands of dollars in fuel and and, but you don't want to send people into battle never having actually operated with each other and the ability to work together inside these network simulations I think it was a game changer, not only for the Army, but also for the Air Force doing work. You're never going to fly into combat by yourself. Uh, And all these things really dramatically transform the way we do battle.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was part of SimNet, um, or at least part of that whole development, was um, the battle of 93 Easting, where they basically sent DARPA-funded scientists after the first Gulf War to the battlefield, like within days of the battle, it's basically the biggest tank battle since World War II, II, Um, and to interview, you know, where was this tank, when was it basically create in a computer, a virtual recreation of the entire battle, and this was tremendously successful and useful, they had something called a magic carpet where you could sort of go fly into any part of Mm -hmm. the battle at any moment in time. And what I found most um, interesting and also telling about it was they tried to do this again um, on one of the battles, not a tank battle, but a battle in Afghanistan. And it, it can't say it failed, but the DARPA-funded people who were involved in it and the DARPA program manager who ran it admitted that... Um, that they couldn't get the honesty that they got. There were political factors at play where nobody wanted to admit that this thing went wrong or that thing went wrong. And it's just sort of a, a right. telling statement on how things have changed.
1: Well, interesting trivia. The commander at 73 Easting is now the national security advisor of the United States. H.R. McMaster yes. was the, yes. the guy who commanded that entire force. You, you started talking about post 9-11 kind of modern usages of DARPA. And so I want to transition to that anyway. Um, Big data, something that is discussed all the time and certainly for the last decade or so, um, that comes from DARPA, but not necessarily in the way that the NSA used it later on. Um, it seemed like the view of, ironically, people like John Poindexter, if people understand that name from Iran-Contra, they may you know kind of chuckle to know. He developed this total information awareness office, but... It seems like if if DARPA had been allowed to continue, and this is counterfactual history, but if DARPA had been allowed to continue that, the privacy protections that it seemed as though DARPA was trying to instill within this data collection would have made the NSA scandal not what it was.
0: I don't think so so I, so let me preface this by saying I really I really liked interviewing John Poindexter. Um, he is you know he I, I certainly don't have a reputation of being sort of pro I mean I've, I think I've been sufficiently critical of DARPA and a Pentagon policy, but I think in a fair way, but it wasn't like he thought he was doing an interview with a friendly person, but he's very open, he's very thoughtful. Um, but I think he and other people involved in these programs fundamentally see privacy differently than privacy advocates do. And so that's the problem. So what, what he was doing when he was at DARPA, John Poindexter, was so these privacy protection devices. And they have this idea of um, sort of there would be a black box, and only computer algorithms would be going through. You know, Your data would all be there, but no one would ever see it, and it would be anonymized. But if it matched this algorithm for a possible pattern, they would sort of get a warrant, some sort of FISA-like warrant, to look at it, to de-anonymize it. And that this privacy protection, this black box, would protect your privacy, my privacy. Um, now, privacy advocates see it completely differently. It's the collection of the data. It doesn't matter whether it's a human seeing it or a computer sifting through it, that your right to control how your data is collected is fundamental to privacy. So I think what what John Poindexter was doing was noble in its own right, or at least in its vision, but it wouldn't have resolved the fundamental tensions. That being said, uh, when the DARPA program basically sort of went ballistic and was attracting congressional attention, public attention, um, what was very unfortunate was this debate over privacy got delayed because they made, made this big show of, oh, we're closing down the program. But they didn't. Um, they closed down the privacy protection part right. of it and moved the rest of it to the black world at NSA. So I think John is absolutely right on that, that that is what was the tragedy of it.
1: Well, let me talk a little bit more about the war on terror. Because it seemed like one of the major problems in DARPA's ability to make any difference whatsoever in the war on terror is terrorism – as an ideology or as an idea, it's very difficult to defeat an idea or an ideology with technology. And you can see the failures throughout where, where projects were rushed to the battlefield without enough testing, everything from the phrase later to the boomerang to things that just that didn't quite understand what was going on, even less than they did during Vietnam. And there's obviously Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam comparisons that everyone has made. Uh, but it seems DARPA was even less capable of providing capable technology. I use capable too many times here, but that's fine. Less capable of providing capable technology to the military during the war on terror um, than they were even in Vietnam.
0: I think they did the best they could. I think that the director of DARPA at the time, Tony Tether, I mean, there was a war going on. He was told, what can you provide? And he made his best effort to provide, you know, counter-sniper technologies, translation technologies, but and this goes to the heart of what I argue in the book, already the parameters that were put on DARPA, um, at that point DARPA was looked at as a technology agency, that's what it does, boom, 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 you give give us a device that translates, you give us a widget, you know, if you're going to do social science, it better be a social science widget that solves warfare. Um, DARPA in the Vietnam War and under William Godell had a much more expansive view, a strategic view. I mean, that's why I came up with the title, The Imagineers of War. It's what they did in the early days of thinking about what were the fundamental causes of warfare, of insurgency, and trying to come up with holistic solutions to it. DARPA by the 2000s, not because it had less smart people, but just because that was the way the Pentagon and the White House defined it, was just basically in some ways a little bit more of sort of a tech agency, a gadget agency. Give us X, give us Y, give us Z.
1: Well, even in that case, you look at DARPA's attempts to win over the public uh, with things like the grand challenge and the network challenge. And it seems like when it comes down to it, the main problem with thinking big in this case is that their political survival really depends on solving tangible problems that are kind of a day-to-day versus bigger science, and you know, like the whole idea of that tension now more than ever because funding is so key to this, because the idea of um, they got to a point where they had to have these contests to get the public perception behind them. Um, the issue potentially, and this is a long-winded question, but I'll leave it up to you kind of how we wrap this up, is it seems like DARPA's role in the future or anyone or any agency like this role in the future is thinking big. Because some of this stuff, whether it's quantum computing or augmented cognition or human-machine interface, more than Licklider was thinking, more actually creating you know, artificial limbs and other things that are, that are way science fiction-y. But science fiction today means two or three years down the road or ten years down the road. Is there enough political will? Is there enough funding capabilities? Are we in a position where they've got to kick out things half-assed like the boomerang and the phrase later to keep their funding, to keep their, uh, you know, the the political support versus thinking of the thing that's going to save us all in 20 years down the
0: road. Right. Well, it's, I mean, actually what you brought up is a great example, again, of this classic tension at DARPA. So the Grand Challenge, which were these series of autonomous, uh, self-driving vehicles, car races in the desert. So... Thanks to DARPA, this emerging industry of self-driving cars that we're now seeing, it's not here yet, but it is coming very quickly now. I mean, quickly meaning this is already, you know, we're 12, 13 years beyond the Grand Challenge. That is a direct result of DARPA and, frankly, of the director at the time, Tony Tether, whose idea it was to do this. Um, But what has that done for national security? Um, Or what is DARPA doing today that's equivalent to the Grand Challenge? I, I honestly don't see it. The danger that DARPA faces is that you can only sort of ride on your past successes for so long. And then the next time you get a, a total information awareness scandal, um, people are going to, your $3 billion in funding, a lot of people are looking at that. Um, DARPA has faced crises before. I don't think it would be disestablished, but I think this fundamental freedom that it's enjoyed and has been crucial to its successes is at threat if it can't continue to show not just that it has successes. I think the Grand Challenger is a tremendous, a world-changing success, or will be eventually. But it has to be able to show what it's done for national security. And if it can't do that in the future, it's, its existence, at least as we know it today, is a threat.
1: Thank you to ZipRecruiter and Movement Watches for continuing to support the SpyCast family. Remember, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash first, and you get 15% off with free shipping and free returns. By going to slash spycast. Well, Sharon Weinberger's book is fascinating. It's called The Imagineers of War The Untold History of DARPA, the Pentagon Agency that Changed the World. I also highly recommend her former two, or pre books before this. Uh, if you like the confluence of, of technology and science and national security, uh, they're, they're must reads. So, Sharon, thank you for taking the time to Thanks talk to us today. you for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.